From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, David Breer, the CEO here at 11FS. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking about HSBC pulling out of the new markets in a bid to really double down on Asia. I mean, this is a really interesting one. It's a trend that we've seen from HSBC and a few other organizations as well to retrench in order to bring about a new level of focus. We were also talking about chip reaching its first monthly profit after an insane nine months growth spurt. Uh, We had the guys on from Chip to talk a little bit about the customer numbers, what the strategy is around that, and actually what that means for them as an organization as well. And uh, lastly, and a bit of a weird one, I'm not going to lie, a self-service tills coming to an end. One British supermarket chain certainly seemed to think so. And we got into really what does the premium experience mean in a physical and a digital world. We'll get onto this and so much more in today's show, but back after these messages. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello and welcome to episode 804, 804 of these, wow, of Fintech Insider. I'm David Breer, the CEO here at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some super duper awesome guests who are here to break down this week's breaking stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, a big hello to my co-host, Rachel Pandayan, who is a ventures product lead here at 11FS. How's it going, Rachel? It's going well, very excited to be back here again. How are you feeling? Because I mean, it's second time on the show. So you're, are you feeling a little bit more comfortable this time? Or is it uh, is it like um, still sort of, uh, oh my God, like we've got to do all the things? I'll be honest, I still haven't listened back to my last one. So I don't know, maybe after a few more of these, I'll have the confidence to listen back to all of the things I've said and maybe regret it. It's for the best. I don't listen back. But uh, we were both out last night. Obviously, it was the 11FS 2023 awards. How are you feeling after a, quite a late night? And I mean, lots of uh, lots of good whooping and shouting for people winning awards, right? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm pretty impressed with myself. I brought myself home at a very reasonable time, so I'm feeling fresh as a daisy. But it was so amazing to see everyone come together and hear some of the stories of the award winners and the nominees as well. It was honestly such a great event. It was pretty cool. I, I apologize in advance to everybody listening to this. My my voice is going to do weirder things as we go on just because of how much talking I did last night. But uh, let's see how we get on. Hey, All right. Uh, I'm also delighted to welcome back to the show Alex Johnson, who is the founder of Fintech Takes. Uh, great to have you back on the show, Alex. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me back. No worries at all. Uh, for the listeners, uh, give a bit of a pitch for, for you and, and what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. As you mentioned, I uh, founded and write a newsletter called Fintech Takes, and it just uh, looks at the intersection of finance and technology and just is an excuse for me to follow my curiosity wherever it may lead in fintech. So uh, that is uh, what I do on a a day-to-day basis and then um, some podcasting as well. And it cool we get paid to like geek out in stuff that you're really passionate about doing like uh, take that career guidance counselor in high school, you know, like it's uh, it's a lovely thing to do, isn't it? 
That's right. Yeah, they uh, they thought I'd never amount to much, but I get to write a newsletter uh, <laughs> every week. So it's all working out great. Yeah. I mean, I feel like at this stage, there's going to be like some long shout out to like that teacher that didn't believe. Uh, like, let's move on at this stage. Fair, yeah. fair. All right. Uh, finally, a fintech insider debut for Paul Delaney, who is the head of commercial over at Chip. Uh, delighted to have you here, Paul. Um, give us a little bit of background on yourself and your role. Uh, you guys have got some uh, exciting news as well in the in the show a little bit later, but we'll get into that later. So tell us a little bit more about your role at Chip and what Chip does. Thanks very much, David. And can I just say as well, I'm very, very pleased to be here. I'm an avid listener of the podcast. So uh, so it's a lovely, lovely day for myself. And uh, yeah, really pleased to be here. Um, yeah, so Chip is the Wealth App. We are a savings and investments platform in the UK. Uh, and we've recently announced some some very exciting news, which we'll touch on later. Um, as you said, I'm the head of commercial at Chip. I'm responsible for all of our third-party strategic partnerships and relationships. And I also work very closely with our products and strategy teams on delivering new products and new bets. So that's what I do. Very, very cool. And we'll get into your news uh, a little bit later on in the show, but uh, some some biggies in there as well. So great to have you on. Um, right, we better get on with the news then, I guess. Uh, first up, we had a, a story that was covered in a bunch of different places, but we picked it up from uh, MoneyWeb, which was HSBC to sell retail and wealth business in Mauritius as it refocuses on Asia. Uh, Europe's biggest lender is selling its wealth offering retail and business banking in Mauritius to ABSA Group, impacting approximately 30 8,000 customers in that area. The sale is the latest in a string of exits from HSBC following the 2022 sale of its Canadian businesses to RBC for £13 billion uh, and pulling out of the US retail banking market in 2021 as well. The bank could exit as many as one in five of its current markets as it sets sights on expanding its business in Asia. The Mauritius deal is still awaiting regulatory approval, but it is expected to complete in in late 2024. Uh, ABSA Group are already operating in Mauritius and see the purchase of HSBC's customer base and the branch network that goes with that as well as an opportunity to increase its footprint in the region. I mean, this is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, we talk about, uh, you know, fintechs focusing on doing something brilliantly and, you know, then moving on after that. But I mean, it's an interesting strategy, isn't it? I mean, Rachel, maybe coming to you first, like, it's an interesting strategy for big organizations to retranche a little bit, you know, be focused and then go again. It's not the only bank that we've seen this. Obviously, NatWest did a lot of this uh, not so long ago in terms of pulling out of the international markets to to sort of triple down. And it's kind of worked pretty well, pretty effectively for them. Yeah. And also we've seen that with Barclays too. I think with HSBC, it's it's such an interesting one, mostly because of their presence in Asia. And I also think the Asian market in general, we've seen this huge immersion of digital initiatives that are unlocking financial inclusion for not just a small amount of customers. We're talking about millions of customers who haven't been banked before, who now are entering the scene and are a customer group that HSBC could quite reasonably target. On the flip side, we think about Mauritius, a really sophisticated marketplace, but ultimately quite small when you think of the piece of the pie that's on offer. And so to me, I think it's less about moving away from Mauritius, but more doubling down on a bet that that in the long term has more returns for someone like HSBC, who seems like um, a more prominent player in the Asia space. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one as well. I, I kind of think from a um, you look at kind of big global organizations, they are 
they're not really one organization, truth be told. I mean, like they are, uh, you know, when you look at one big bank in one big country, it's, you know, 50 different backend systems. But if you look at that 50 backend systems across 50 countries, like, oh my God, like, how do you solve that problem? Do you know what I mean? Like you need a, it's the ultimate Gordian knot problem from a monolithic technology perspective. So, you know, I, I can see why they can't make it work if that actually every one of these things needs to be fundamentally operated in a completely different way. But that just isn't how you would, if you're going to start a tech business, you wouldn't build a stack, you know, a, a tech stack for each one of these geographies to go into it. But I mean, Alex, uh, I can't imagine really like, you know, the the US market really noticed HSBC leaving, to be honest with you. You know, I think uh, in certain states, I think people presumed they were a sponsor of the uh, airport lounge more than uh, necessarily a, um, a, a bank in that sense. But uh, what do you think to this one? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the um, the U.S. expansion and then pullback uh, is emblematic of something we see a lot uh, with um, banks or other companies that come to the U.S. market and then find it's actually a lot more crowded and difficult to compete here than uh, you might think from the outside. And yeah, I mean, to me, the the bigger question, and I think HSBC is a good example of this, is you know, as you said, these are really like independent businesses or business units that are operating in different countries. And the only thing that really ties them together is a brand. And I do sort of wonder if the value of a global banking brand is just less today than it used to be. Um, I, I wonder if banking sort of has fundamentally changed and your right to win in different markets probably has a lot less to do with you know this global name that you've been cultivating for centuries than it used to. That that's sort of my general theory here because I I don't really see any other particularly strong advantages that these brands have in these markets. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? What is um, I mean, we're gonna like sidebar. What is trust in a digital age is like a special we need to do because there's like three hours of a conversation that we can go into on that one. But it is an interesting point, isn't it? Which is, you know, strategically, what is the advantage of being big in this market? Um, and actually, you know, if you're, you know, the economies of scale that you should be able to bring by being awesome at something and, you know, rolling out being awesome of it in other places, uh, when you've got the heritage of many of these organizations being through mergers and acquisitions over the last I don't know, 100 years, let's go for, uh, then actually, I mean, it makes it really difficult to see the the interlocking web of, you know, culture and technology and everything goes there. Is that really a strategic advantage? I mean, it sounds like debt to me rather than a positive, but, you know, maybe we'll see. I mean, do, do you think this is potentially, though, uh, you know, a kind of a, hey, let's get back to what we're great at doing and then go again, Alex? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think Asia is a market where HSBC has demonstrated that they have some strength and that they have developed a right to win there. And so putting putting more resources where you know you can win, I think to your point, makes a lot of sense. There is, I think, uh, particularly when you get into areas of banking like wealth management, there's a bit of an ego element to, I think, uh, this where you're like, oh, you know, there are rich people who live in this country. We should go, you know, get that market. And so, you know, it'd be cool to have an office there to build branches in that market. And so I think we are definitely seeing, and not just with HSBC, but like in the U.S. city is going through a similar sort of transformation where they're sort of resizing and trying to figure out what the right size is. And I think a big part of that is stripping a lot away of the costs that were driven maybe more by ego or an assumption that you could win everything everywhere that has proven not to be the case. 
Yeah, no longer those big marble offices. I, I do miss them in some instances. But uh, uh, what, what do you think then, Paul? I mean, is this a sort of a, I mean, HSBC moved away from the whole, you know, the world's local bank. But I mean, increasingly, there's a sort of a shift towards, I mean, fintech is all community, right? You know, this is about building products for people in communities. That inevitably is more of a local play than it is a global play. So what do you think to that? Yeah, sure. It is interesting. I think, you know, when, when I saw this story, I, I thought of HSBC's other big news, news story, especially in the UK earlier in the year, which was the purchase of Silicon Valley Bank. So really targeting that fintech niche in the UK, serving a local market, um, moving out of one in Mauritius, which I can't say I know much about, but moving right into where we were, where we play in the, you know, the SVB, SVB space. Um, I think the conversations you guys have just had, it shows they need to, they, they adopt different strategies for different markets. It's not one homogenous beast. It, it, it has different strategies in different places. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I guess my take is we, we've seen HSBC growing in the UK or, or, or growing certainly more in, in, towards the fintech and, and fundraising side and business banking side. Um, that, that's our experience with them. Yeah. I guess, um, look, we shouldn't judge them in terms of what their focus is and where they want to get to. I think probably the biggest conclusion for the four of us on this one is we probably want to know more about the banking situation in Mauritius, which I, I think requires extensive like uh, primary research that we should probably organise as a four. Uh, but maybe we'll uh, we'll take that one to WhatsApp. Hey? Um, right. So next story that we had was a, a super good one. And, and Paul, actually, it's great to have you on board to, to talk about this one a little bit more. We picked it up from Finextra but Chip reports first profitable quarter, which is uh, by no means a small feat in the world that we live in today. So Chip, uh, and I should add the award-winning, 11FS award-winning Chip, uh, winner of the best onboarding last night at uh, the 11FS. Did I mention we did an awards? I think I've mentioned it four times now. Uh, We attracted £2.8 billion of net cash deposits between January and September of 2023. Uh, It also saw its number of active monthly users increase 164% to more than 215,000 accounts. It now has 790,000, there's a lot of numbers in this, Paul. I'll come to you for for verification of all of these shortly. 790,000 registered users and holds customer deposits of more than three billion pounds. Chip says the results were driven by the launch of a new savings account and consumers sought to capitalize on the rising interest rates. Uh, it's, I mean, you're, you're straying into very esteemed uh, group of people here with Clearbank, Bunk, Klarna, Monzo, Tandem, Pension B, and a bunch of others uh, who have all discarded the growth at all costs mantra uh, in that race for profitability. So, I mean, congratulations, Paul. That's a uh, a massive step for the organization to to take over that period of time, particularly in quite a, a difficult period of time, actually, for, for many organizations out there as well. So tell us a little bit more about what that means for Chip's overall strategy. And, and actually, uh, I mean, was this, a, I won't say it's a, nobody bumps into profitability accidentally, but was it a, a changing intact when it came to that being the goal? No, th- thank thank you so much. I th- I think um, th- there are a few points to touch on, but I you know the business's overall goal was always to reach profitability. We can say that it's it's come sooner than planned, and we really did jump on the opportunity. And you know we're an agile startup; we're able to move quickly and and really target certain certain product lines. Um, and you know we've seen enormous customer deposits, largely due to our ability to 
to deliver that that savings account with a really attractive interest rate. But the story goes back a bit deeper and a bit further. I think you look back at the chip story. I've been at chip for over five years, but we were originally an, an e-wallet helping people auto save. And we took the bet back in 2019, I think it was, to, to shift our infrastructure away from e-money onto embedded banking to give us the ability to offer real FSCS protected savings accounts when interest rates were near zero because we knew in the long term of building out the wealth app people need that cash base so we took that bet and and that work is you know it's not an overnight success it's happened very quickly but that work has been you know being built for it for a couple of years so we have that embedded banking technology i think we also have something which is unique among wealth managers and actually other savings firms is we can set our own interest rates but we don't have a lending book so chip could go to market and we can offer really competitive rates and we can see you know people are betting on bank of england rate increasing again we can go out before the banks and we don't need to worry about that now, interest margin or, 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 you know, we set our margin, we take that spread and that's how we get the profitability whilst challenging, you know, going for the growth at the same time. So those two things happened. Um, and look, we, we've, we've ridden a, a wave. We really have focused on, on driving new customer deposits, but we've been very specific about who we've been targeting. And I think it would be amiss just to say we went out to market with a strong interest rate. We, we've, work with our branding and our and our marketing teams to really go and target a specific type of customer who fit into our overall vision for the consolidated wealth app for what we're calling the aspiring mass affluent or the mass affluent customer base in the UK. Well, I was going to say I had started to notice on the tube your new ads talking about assets but making them more personalized. And I, I remember thinking at the time, this feels like a definite shift between the chip that I knew that came out that felt almost a little bit like Plum or Clio, where it was like, hey, you know, here's like a little bit of savings, put it aside. It was more long term thinking, but in a relatable way when you don't have thousands and thousands of pounds to put aside and I actually think that to me was one of the like obviously interest rates are great and everyone's been able to benefit from them but more actually what was offered was we're going to talk to you at this point where you're in a cost of living crisis you're trying to protect assets you're trying to get into saving let me speak to you as a customer now and that felt like a, a bigger shift than obviously the interest rates that everyone capitalized as on as well. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, I love those tube ads as well. I can't say I had anything to do with them, but our, our marketing team who who and our branding team have really thought long and hard about, you know, we we say the commercial objectives of the business and we've identified the customer we want to go over for the long-term success of the business. It is somebody who is, you know, maybe they're, they're millennial age, they're, they're 35, they're 40, they are on an upwards earning trajectory. They want to be spoken to in a premium and personal way. They don't want to be sold financial products all the time they want to feel like they've got a product that they they can trust that that feels personal to them and i think the tube ads if you haven't seen them everyone go, go and have a look at they're probably on our instagram but they really encapsulate that feeling of what we want chip to be and we're not just an interest rate where it's a very transactional relationship and so you know we, we set the target customer base we, we've gone and built a brand proposition for that and and more than that we're building the proposition out for that so you know the savings rate is is great and it gets people in the door but we've been able to because of that hook um acquire customers relatively cheaply and then have a great conversation with them about but what is your wealth journey what do you want next can we sell you our stocks and shares isa we've seen great cross sell into that already we're, we're really targeting that over the next you know six nine twelve months to to level that up we're speaking about customers again about future products and we'll come on to it in a minute but we're going to build a cash isa because most of the customers we speak to now and 
who are for the first time going to be hit by a big tax bill because they have to pay income tax on their savings, which hasn't happened for 10, 15 years. A lot of people wouldn't have done that. And, you know, we've been able to react to those new customers as they come in because we've laid down the foundation with that embedded banking and, and, and really thought about it for the long term. So, um, yeah, thanks very much. The, our feedback to the marketing guys that you love the tube. Catherine. How much is that? Uh, uh, yeah, Alex was definitely uh, getting all giddy when they came out, and they they clearly have a, had an impact, as you, as you say. But the um, Alex is um, Chip CMO for everybody listening to this. Uh, I, I think the I mean the interesting point on that as well is like the the shift in what consumers are willing to. I mean, it's great interest rates are a thing and we're all excited about that and that's awesome. But but actually, like, that only works if you've got a brand that can actually have that type of dialogue with customers in in that way. You know, that, that point you made uh, around that this isn't just a product play, this is a sort of an orchestration of, uh, hey, do you trust this organization enough to tell you what their problems are in order to be able to solve them? Um, you know, I keep saying it's like, how do we get services back in financial services? And this is really what the core of what you're trying to do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we're, we're not naive to the fact that savings is one part of this wider wealth proposition that we want to build. We've been able to leverage that a lot this year. And, and we know that if interest rates are higher for longer, they might flatten out next year and we will be able to remain competitive, but we need to sell people other products. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, maybe it's, we want to be the, the hog who's lands down in 10 years that all people of our age are using for their wealth platform. And we need to have those conversations with people. And it might not sound sexy now, but we need to make it look sexy. And we need to make people want to come into the chip app and open another ricer and, and invest sensibly for the long term. Um, and, and trust is a huge thing to that. I, I think, David, we won last night the onboarding award or, or, the, or the most efficient onboarding or, or the Pulse team mentioned that. And I think, you know, the, the customer we're going after demands not only a relationship with it, but, but it needs to be super easy to use. And you need to be able to deposit seamlessly, withdraw seamlessly, transfer between accounts that in other platforms you can't transfer between. If you go to your old wealth manager, you cannot sell down from a fund back into your cash savings. It has to go into uninvested cash, back to your bank account, lock it back in. And, you know, alongside the headline interest rate, we've been building all of those user experience and, and, and brand pieces to make sure that we're, we're fit for purpose, um, you know, to up and cross sell people beyond just the, just the interest rate. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting, Alex, isn't it? I mean, I, f I feel like the industry as a whole, I mean, not not just with, with Chip here, but I mean, it's great, great for those guys. But actually, I mean, like, fintech's growing up, man. Like, I remember it when, you know, like, it's like actually, you know, hitting profitability and getting to that point where actually there's, you know, there's uh, not only really exciting businesses, but the sustainability of that. I mean, that's definitely something I know organizations are seeing over in the US as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the feeling I had during 2020 and 2021 was like, am I losing my mind? Like, am I going crazy? Or is like the rest of the world, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell. And I think it was just because of what you said. I mean, all of these businesses need to make sense from a bottom line perspective at some point. And obviously when you're building a venture backed business or a startup, there's a window of time where that's not your goal. And that's obviously fine. But I think, you know, something Paul mentioned that really resonated with me was, you know, laying the groundwork to have a savings account when interest rates were zero, right? And I think that's a really 
good lens to look at how you build profitable businesses, right? Because a a really great business is never going to have one product. A really great business is never going to have one business model. In financial services, that doesn't work, right? Because interest rates are up. And so this business model works great for us now, but then interest rates go down and oh no. And we see this in mortgage every time that interest rates spike or go back down, like suddenly it's booming or now it's dying. And so you need to build a durable, multi-product, multi-business model business. And I think, you know, Paul, what you shared is a really good example of, you know, we want to build this product out because we know our customers are going to need this. And we don't know necessarily when this component of our business is going to be a big driver for our profitability. Maybe it might be another five, 10 years. We don't know, but we know our customers need this product. And so we're going to add that. And I think what you're seeing in fintech in the US, in Europe, kind of across the board is people being a lot more thoughtful about, we're not just going to build our roadmap based on what's sexy. We're not going to chase like whatever the newest trend is like, oh, they're adding crypto. So we have to add crypto. It's being a lot more thoughtful about what is it our customers need? What value do we provide to them? And what's going to sort of diversify our base of how we make money over time so that we can thrive sort of regardless of what the broader environment is doing. And I'm I'm excited to see that type of thinking in fintech. It, it's it's interesting that, I mean, that point, Alex, I mean, look, when crypto's up and like London cabbies are talking about it, we definitely, <laughs> you know, the, that 11FS inbox of like, hey, we think we should do something great. Like that does happen, you know what I mean? But, but I, I mean, how much are these two uh, stories actually pretty well connected? I mean, like, look, HSBC moving back from uh, being able to operate those things at a, a scale or a cost efficiency that actually makes it work. Uh, and fintechs, you know, ultimately it's... Um, kind of the uh, theory of evolution, isn't it? I mean, you guys at Chippool, you've adapted to the market quicker than anybody else can do. And therefore, your ability to to respond to it and solve problems for consumers is is greater than other people's in that space as well. So I, I really feel like we're at a point in the industry where like, you know, like fintechs and banks kind of like look similar from like the the skin deep perspective but fundamentally like the operating capability the technology that underpins them it is just not the same these things are not the same and they're not you know it's not even apples and oranges it's like one of these is just not even a fruit you know what i mean like so so i i kind of feel like actually this point from here onwards i i feel like the gap in experience the service gap between you know what players like yourself, Paul, and, you know, the traditional organizations because of their ability to, you know, can you take it from your, your, an idea to the customer? You guys can do that really quickly. And that's why you guys can win, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it has to happen across, as Alex was saying, across across different verticals and different business models, you know, do it laying the groundwork for our investments proposition when cycles change and people, everyone's investing again and trying to get back into the market. We know that we've had, we bought that time while cash is king to be able to build out those products. And I think we're really well positioned because we have both of those products live and ready. There are a lot of firms we've seen trying to get into cash in the last nine months, you may have missed this, you know, this growth spurt. We didn't have crypto live two years ago. And if we did, I'm sure we would have ridden that. We would have ridden that 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 trend. So I think you're right. And I, and I think we've learned the importance of um, building quickly and responding to markets whilst following relentlessly that mission and vision of creating the wealth app. And we will continue to do that 
we've learned lessons. We're five years old now, or six years old, I think, and I can't even remember anymore. But, um, but we're a more mature startup business. And so we know what works and how to build things quickly. And the product and engineering teams have built really efficient processes. And, and you know, we, 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 we bet on a strategy and we go for it. And, and I think that might take longer at incumbents. And obviously, um, yeah, we're, benefit, we're benefiting from that. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it is the, um, it's the absolute tortoise in the hair race, but maybe in this story, the tortoise doesn't win. So, uh, all right, on that note, we're going to take a little bit of a break. We'll be back with you very shortly. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Before we get back into the second half of the new show, uh, a quick note to check out the most recent Fintech Insider Insights show. Kate Moody and our very own Executive Creative Director, Will Jones, was discussing how to rebrand a Fintech. They're joined by some super duper awesome guests from Wise and Adyen and Onfric to discuss exactly what it takes to do a rebrand. What does that mean? And really, what is the different experiences of actually kind of making those things happen? rebranding doesn't change your service what you do changes your service but actually how you manifest the pitfalls and those challenges uh, is a really interesting conversation so go and check that out Uh, it will be probably the one above below I mean down to your podcast client isn't it but uh, let's get back into the news all right so the next story that we had was one that we picked up on the fintech times this is the eu and parliament reach agreement on the new instant payment rules uh, a new instant payment proposal will improve the availability of instant payments options in euros to consumers and businesses in the eu and the e- european economic area the eea so the the agreement will will mean any payment service providers psps Uh, who provide standard credit transfers in euros will now be required to offer instant payment services in euros also. That's the third time I read it for anybody listening to this, just because like it didn't make a great deal of sense to me. So feel free to play that back. Uh, The new rules are designed to provide greater autonomy to the European economy and less reliance on third-party financial institutions to make that thing happen. However, the agreement also considers non-euro entities with a longer transition period built in to those outside the eurozone. 
phone. So, I mean, how impactful will this be? I mean, Rachel, like, man, this is a complicated one. I'm going to come to you first on at this because I reckon out of everybody here, you've researched this one, haven't you? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, I'm I'm really interested in payments regulation, and I find this one particularly interesting I think it is a step in the right direction for the eurozone for a lot of reasons but primarily because the whole point of the eurozone is that it's this area of free travel and therefore free commerce between all the different countries that form a part of it at the moment I was reading a stat earlier with by the European Commission did my research around 11 percent of all transfers in the EU are, tra- are in real time 11 percent like this is a huge area and I think it's easy to think of like Europe as this high performing economy when you think of places like Germany and and innovations coming out of France but there are so many different facets to the eurozone and I think by bringing this regulation in it enables all of the different regions thinking about areas in Italy and Spain to to really compete and offer more digital services the question I think is more around how you enforce and support regulation like this, because we're not targeting banks, we're targeting PSPs, and they might not have the infrastructure or the funds to be able to deliver these kinds of changes. And then also, I guess, what comes afterwards, you know, open banking came in, I remember the good old days, and we all pushed to get these APIs live, and we're still not seeing any coherent services. And so the ability to push these these instant payments live is great but then also what what the psps do with it afterwards would be the really interesting thing for me but i think it's it's a really important step for the eurozone to bring in this kind of um monetary union as well as um the the geographical union they have in place yeah i I guess there's a a, a, like i I don't want to sort of get into um sounding like some sort of tub thumping brexiteer like uh, we've done those podcasts you can go back and listen to them at another time but but it but it's a um it's an interesting one i mean as uh, you know technologists standardization sounds like a great thing doesn't it the practicality of that is okay whose standards are we going to use right because everybody thinks their standards are the right you know uh, alex i mean uh, you know the implementation of even the uh, you know, uh, Fed's payments capability. I mean, it's like agreeing what standard and, you know, what open banking looks like in, you know, I mean, it's a, it's not an easy thing to do. And almost like any, anywhere where you find you have um, countries or large organizations compromising to create a standard, the compromise is usually in the end result, right? Uh, not just in terms of the, what the standard actually looks like. So, I mean, is this type of thing, you know, this particular example aside, because I think, uh, again, I think we need another hour and uh, probably a, a four days of research to really dig into the details of this one. But but I mean, standardization sounds like a good idea, but the practicalities never really live up to the, uh, to the expectations, do they? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, we're dealing with this, as you noted, in the US right now, both on faster payments and open banking. I swear, we're trying to catch up to all of you in Europe. Like, we're we're just, we're, we're on our way. We can sort of see you racing up ahead of us, and we're trying to catch up. But I mean, I we also are trying, I think, to take lessons from what you've seen. And I think Rachel points out a really good example that, you know, with open banking, you know, you put these things in place and then you're like, okay, now everybody go, you know, and it's, um, it reminds me of the the idiom, you know, you 
can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Like the part of that that they're not saying is you can lead the horse to water, you can't make it drink, and it'll probably kick you in the face because it's mad at you at the same time. And I think that's kind of what you see with a lot of these requirements where it makes sense. It's nice to have a standard, but there's something almost like enraging to private market participants about being forced to a standard that they didn't want or didn't agree to. And they'll a lot of times really kind of slow down introducing products that take advantage of these capabilities and actually like pushing them the last mile to the customer. And obviously that's what regulators and governments want is for these capabilities to actually make it into the market. But that requires private market participants to play an active and enthusiastic role. And I think that's what you see missing a lot of times with these things. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? And that dynamic, I mean, it's been fascinating really over the last like decade, really, to sort of see that dynamic play out with you know, different measures of those things in different markets as well, right? It's uh, it's really been the uh, the fuel, as uh, as Rachel says, to to you know bring the, that change about, or at least um, bring about competition in the market that actually allows uh, the pressures on the incumbent organisations to to do interesting things in that space. But um, I mean, what do you think on this one, Paul? I'm not going to draw you into the intricacies of the 700 page document that I'm sure was accompanying all of these things. But uh, I mean, it's standards seem sensible, don't they? But uh, yeah, I, I, I think and, and I'm not in the detail of it. But I think when you talk about standards, and especially in, in you know, the EEA and the EU, as a, as a UK firm potentially looking to expand or, or progress internationally, where we assess different markets and it, the sound of it is good, right? For me, if it's it's we can expand into Europe and the standards will be the same, and actually in whichever market in the EU you move into, the customer, you know, we can hook into instant payment rails, and our Spanish customers don't have to wait five days and have a worse user experience than our German ones. For me, it sounds great, and it's like you say, is the implementation as effective, or you know, is does it look like what it's what it's meant to look like to the end consumer? Um, but no, from 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 my perspective, if it if it makes the barrier to entry lower for you know international incumbents and creates competition, then I guess that is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I come back to my point earlier on. So long as the standard gets you to a point where the uh, it's a good standard, not just a standard. Do you know what I mean? In terms of, I think actually where the the push with something like open banking in the UK it got us to a good place like actually the quality of the data the you know the the service that was being provided by those services was was good therefore actually it creates a good foundation to build things on um you know have we come as far as we would have liked in terms of all of the um the hype around open banking and those standards around it maybe not but um but there's definitely a lot more people doing things with it now than than there was even you know 6 months a year ago which is uh, exciting to see I think you were about to jump in, Rach. I was just going to say, I'd argue when open banking first came out that it actually, it wasn't that steady a standard and it pushed the realms of competition from just aggregation because at first when it came out, it was the race to get aggregation live and to get aggregated payments live. And then it was like, oh shoot, what is the actual service? What is the customer proposition that goes along with it? And I think that's the similar position for instant payments. We're acting like instant payment is the thing that you can compete on. No, this is, think about consumer duty. This is what customers deserve and expect as digital consumers. And so what is the innovation in the payment space that comes off the back of instant payments? Because, you know, Alex, to your point, we shouldn't be pushing um, private uh, companies out of this race, but also 
if they're competing on instant payments, it's only because the Eurozone has been behind to date. And so I think this infrastructure will bring more competition, but around more interesting things, as opposed to the foundational experience, which will benefit more of the smaller participants in the market. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I agree. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that it's very much of a push and pull sort of thing where it's like you have to sort of jump ahead and then pull the market up to where you need them to be. And I completely agree. The The value really gets unlocked when the standard is set and everyone knows sort of what the rules are. And now you can all compete within that rule set. But if you don't have that the status quo tends to sort of persist. And I, I think the other thing we don't take enough into consideration with this stuff is the status quo is really profitable for incumbents, right? And so there really is no uh, sort of natural market reason for them to change. We're still, I, I was talking to someone the other day about the persistent use of checks as a payment method in the US, right? And like 40% of payments are still made via checks, which is insane. But there are companies that benefit from checks being written and processed, right? Someone's making making money from that. And so you always have to, I think, sort of look at that. And that's where I think regulation can make a big difference. Yeah. I mean, the whole concept of a notary over in the US, like there's like thousands of people who are like, you know, <laughs> it is. Yeah, but do you know, I, I, I feel a little bit with this one, even where, um, and uh, uh, do you know, I felt maybe, uh, um, you know, five, six years ago, I kind of felt like there was, there, there was this grand plan like and I, i'm not uh don't worry i'm not getting into like a religious belief thing or i felt like the regulators were moving us in a direction and it was almost like um i've got two small kids we used to blend vegetables and put them into things like hide vegetables because <laughs> it was good yeah. for them right. they didn't know it was good for them but it was good for them right and, and the the sort of advent of um these standards the advent of uh, um, advent of mobile like mobile banking taught the banks that they didn't know what good customer experience was so they had to kind of rethink it um you know, open banking and PSD2 taught bankers what APIs was, and that's good as well. You know, it kind of moves these things forward. So I think um, the sort of knock-on effect of these things, even if they they don't, there's always the the strategy and then the, the, the knock-on effects of those strategies. I mean, it feels like actually it's moved the the narrative forward. It's moved the the language, the conversations, and, and what uh, big incumbents think is important. Um, have they got all the answers and have they solved all those problems? Hell no. But uh, again, that's uh, uh, probably a story for a, a much longer conversation. So, uh, all right, moving on. Uh, there was a, a lot of other stories as well. This one we picked up on uh, AltFi. Klarna launches global rollout of creator and retail uh, growth tools. I mean, this is a, an amazing space and we've had a few different people talking about this on the the podcast before, but Klarna, the buy now, pay later brand is branching out with the launch of Creator Stories and Ad Manager. The former will support creators with tools to create their digital storefront on the Klarna website. Uh, the, the latter will create a personalized shopping experience for customers who choose to share their info with Klarna. Both services are part of a wider strategic move to become a growth partner and retail media network within the industry, according to their CMO, David Sandstrom. Uh, I mean, Alex, this one's super interesting. The sort of creator developer economy. I mean, there's lots of interesting things happening in that space. I mean, it's amazing to see a gigantic organization like Klarna really sort of pushing into this as well. But I mean, is this a almost like finding where they can attract niches to provide really focused services. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think there's a 
real link to the way they market and the sort of brand that they want to have. And so I think creators are a very natural fit as a segment that they want to enable. But, um, you know, it's part of a broader shift at Klarna away from their roots to really being, you know, kind of the, I've always sort of thought of them in in recent terms as like, the the front 40% of like amazon.com so it doesn't have all the logistics on the back end but like the marketplace the discoverability the value adds to merchants the advertising network like they want to be that and i think um you know this ability to create digital storefronts kind of bridges them into being in the same realm that like a shopify is in but like the game is merchant enablement and you know the financial services products that get hung around that are in a lot of cases sort of secondary and so this seems very consistent with their vision to help merchants sell more regardless of what the the specific capability is. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting strategy, as you say, as well, when, I mean, you come into a market like Klarna did and, uh, you know, um, not just like awesome Snoop Dogg adverts, which were great. Uh, I think Katy Perry's currently doing one as well, potentially. But, but the, uh, you know, the idea that you either go up or down, right? You're either, you'll push yourself into services that add value or potentially your product becomes a commodity and you become commoditized. So, uh, I mean, is this their push for added value services, do you think, to, to kind of keep that crown? Yeah, I think it is. And I think that, um, you know, the thing that uh, Klarna has demonstrated to me is that they know exactly who their customer is, right? And I think that's one thing in the buy now, pay later space that sometimes gets a little confused is, well, are we are we serving the customer? Are we serving the merchant? Do we want to be our own financial services brand, sort of independent of all of these things? And like Klarna, to its credit, is laser focused on the merchant is our customer, the retailer is our customer, and everything we can do to enable that chief marketing officer who works at this retail brand to be as successful in their job as possible, that's what we're going to do. And so, yeah, I think that this is them doubling down on that. And, you know, you can say that, okay, well, that means that maybe Klarna's uh, retail consumer customers are not actually the customer. Maybe they're more the product and you can get into discussions about affordability and the concerns with buy now, pay later. But from a business perspective, I see zero confusion at Klarna about who they're trying to serve and where they're investing, which is, I think, a very smart way to build your business. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one as well, Rachel, in terms of like their push into, you know, really like hyper personalization in that sense as well, which, uh, I mean, it's an interesting territory. I mean, it's sort of the promise of the internet really was the, you know, it's uh, the shop for you or the, you know, the the personalized experience in that sense. It can get a little bit freaky in Amazon sometimes, I'll be honest with you, like uh, buy a joke gift for somebody and you can't get it off your home screen for forever type thing. But uh, what, what do you think? Is this a a good use of uh, kind of algorithms and uh, propensity modeling to to really give a personalized service? I feel like there's some kind of gag because I have long, very strong opinions on buy now, pay later, and it's always brought up when I have to speak about um, Fintechs. So I think... Klarna is great for a lot of reasons because they've made Strap so Strap yourself many- in for a 20-minute <laughs> rant here, everybody. No, I'm going I'm to keep it brief, I promise. But no, um, obviously Klarna is great. It's enabled people to find the items that they actually love, which I think has been lost. Amazon used to be a place where you could find high-quality goods really easily, and now it's become this huge marketplace saturated with products that may or may not fit the bill. You'll order it, and you think you get... like a chair for your garden it's actually like a doll's chair or something and I don't know like it's it's crazy and it's hard to navigate 
Klarna is completely different to that. And I really love how they have, I don't use it very often, but when I do click into the app, it's based on the purchases that I've made and the, you know, by enabling merchants, they have enabled a better consumer experience. I think with that though comes the, the responsibility of someone like Glana to ensure that by pushing the products that they know that I need and I want, you're not just pushing me to buy it straight away. You're helping me find more intelligent moments to buy it. Like finding me and curating the right objects is one part of it. But if you happen to have expensive taste, maybe I don't need to buy all those things that come out all the time. Perhaps you can find me a better time to buy it. Black Friday's coming up. Could you find me some sales or find me more responsible ways to purchase? And I think that that for me is what's missing. Their algorithm is is perfect because of the merchant relationships that they've forged. But what's missing is this level of consumer responsibility in their propositions, which I'd, I'd love to see from them so I could love them a little bit more. But I'm just not there. Was that brief? Was that okay? No, no, it was. I, I, feel, I feel like I touched a nerve that I'm worried I'm about to touch again. But it, but it's an interesting one because we, we've um, we've had that. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the UK Consumer Duty Act and blah, 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 you know. Like, but actually, I mean, we've had people on the podcast who have a, a very different view. I mean, we had um, uh, Ron Shevlin on uh, and he was like, tell me what I can spend my money on and I will never come to that organization ever again. You know what I mean? Like my money is my money. What I do with it. If I want to go into debt, I want to go into debt. It might just because Ron's <laughs> quite a, uh, he's quite a grumpy old man. I'll be honest with you at that times. That does but, sound but like, like Ron. Yeah, that the point does sound is like there. Yeah. It does. Yeah, it was a pretty decent impression. I didn't do the accent, but the the feeling was there, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> um, but, but do you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a, it is a fine line in that, isn't it? Which is, um, but, but I, I think the challenge there though, is, isn't necessarily, uh, the, the problem with consumer duty in the, the UK is essentially, um, you know, um, do you, are the banks trusted to say to somebody when they've had enough? Do you know what I mean? It's like the, uh, the bartender at the end of the night type thing. I'm like, no, sir, you've had enough. Like actually, is there a good enough relationship between the brands and the customers that actually they have that type of engagement with them or are banks, you know, I, I think it's, it's quite rich for banks to, to try and play that position. It's like, um, it's like betting companies trying to, you know, market around being, you know, sustainable betting. It's like, you can't be both of these things. You know, you've got to be one of them or the other, or you've got to fundamentally change your business model, you know? So it's, um, you know, Klarna is there to sell stuff, isn't it? Really, and I, and I'm not I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, and I don't want to anger you, Rachel. But it's like actually, it's a it's an interesting problem, isn't it? Uh, ultimately, is the business model of financial services to enable people to do stuff, or is it there to help people be better off? I would argue it's currently the first one, but there's a whole opportunity for it to be the second one. Uh, but I feel again, I, God, we just keep taking the scab off real big things don't we yeah I, I, sorry i was just going to jump in i mean i mean there's a big elephant in the room here in financial services where the only one where hyper personalization and helping people to do more works and that's in savings and wealth building so i mean the traditional model of financial advice is to meet with a financial advisor and they know you inside out on your hyper personalized level and they tell you you should put away more of this so it's the complete opposite of what Klarna are trying to get out of 
knowing information about you. They're trying to know information about you, your pattern, so they can sell you and probably make you worse off financially. Something we're really trying to do and really trying to close that advice gap and help people save more money is we want to know as much as we can about our customers so that we can spot those areas at which they they should be putting that money away and probably not buying those shoes or whatever it is they're logging onto Klarna. And I'm as bad as anyone. I love spending money, probably too much for someone who works at Chip. But it's 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 heartening knowing that we've got real people trying to solve that problem in the market and, and trying to counter some of these behemoths who it's so easy to spend money. I can use Apple Pay. I can do Deliveroo. I can buy Uber. And, it, and we're trying to make it that easy to save money as well. So um, the, these developments in... in well, it, it, it comes back to... Yeah, go on. I think it comes back to that point I was making earlier on, though, Paul, which is like, um, you know, if I'm sneaking courgettes into a bolognese <laughs> to make my kids better off, you know, actually, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because tricking people into something... Uh, or, or engaging people, bringing people into the the context of why it's good for them and the benefit of it. You know, I, I don't want to cast aspersions. You're not tricking people into anything, by the way. Um, it's uh, you know bringing people into the fold of doing. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it all comes down to whether it's good for them or bad for them, doesn't it? Um, and actually, the context of that is actually a like a, like I say, I, I can see Laura already. Like this is going to be an hour. We need to get everybody back to kind of talk about. But I really think that would be a, a fascinating thing to dig into. <laughs> so uh, me, me and um, Jason. Are a couple of weeks ago, I actually met with a, uh, the CEO of one of the, the challenge banks in the UK. And we had that, com- we started that conversation. It was a, look, inherently is banking business models at odds with actually a, um, you know, a culture of solving the world and changing, you know, because actually fundamentally at the end of the day, it's financial services, right? We all know the industry we're getting into. It is about lending people money. It is about savings in those senses. So but actually, is it is the context the bit that's missing out on? Because all of the things that you're referring to, Paul, uh, are really what are, and it's it's weird, I sound like such an old man, but it's like, it's the stuff that people used to do really well for people. Do you know what I mean? It's the stuff that branches were really good at doing. And actually having lost all of those really deeply empathetic people who might have been able to go, Rachel, I think you've had enough. Like actually, like that might have been the the role that they played. But um, let's definitely get this back together. This this uh, you know is it a, is, is financial services inherently evil? Podcast. We'll do that one next day. All right, moving on. Uh, Big Click Energy, as always, every week, there's a bunch of stuff that we don't get the time to, to cover in a, a, a major way. But we're going to give a, a little bit of a, an overview of one of the stories that popped up that we thought was interesting. So quick fire round. I think, Rachel, you're going to take this one, right? I would love to. Thank you, David. Um, so for this week's Big Click Energy, um, we're talking about Revolut, who have raised their monthly fees for premium customers. Revolut currently offer five plans from their free offering up to Ultra. However, they've announced users on their three or other paid plans will see a small price increase of up to £2 per month. In return, these users will get additional access to lifestyle app subscriptions previously reserved for the top tier customers. So we're increasing the benefits accessible to all of the other plans. Um, And these subscriptions include a wide variety of services from the Financial Times to Tinder, which could save customers up to thousands of pounds per year. Um, Revolu are also promising additional features and benefits to their Ultra members in due course. I find this a really interesting move from Revolu and it ties in with their relaunch of Revolut 10, which has seen a massive overhaul of the app, the UX that they offer and the ability to navigate through the super app. 
Personally, I think that this slight raise in fees is a really good thing from them, but only because of the benefits that they have on offer, while also maintaining a really solid free offering. And I think the only reason they've been able to do this well is because they have such a solid core offering and the pricing is still pretty low for the other benefits that they have on offer. Things like subscriptions are actually tangible benefits as opposed to some of the other benefits you can get from a few of your banking providers, which you won't actually ever get to see the benefits of, like lounge access and all of the weird lounges that you never actually want to go to and you just want the the bougie ones, which is explains my issues with ne- not needing to use Klarna more than I should. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's all there is on Revolut. I don't know, David, if you've got anything else to add on that one. No, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, whether actually the customer numbers of each of those tiers changes as a result of this or not. And, uh, you know, there's always an interesting thing around those those services, whether people there, uh, is it perceived value or is it real value in terms of things that people actually use, right? So, uh, but let's see. I mean, I'm sure uh, if it goes well, there'll be some customer announcements soon. If it doesn't, then uh, there'll be a different announcement, I guess, at that stage. All right. Uh, the last story that we're going to cover, and I read this one earlier on and I was like, we do a fintech podcast. What's this got to do with fintech? Um, but it's something a little bit random. But actually, I think it leads to quite an interesting conversation. So, yeah, I see what you did there, Laura. Um, the Booth supermarkets are to ditch self-checkout in the north of England. Doesn't translate great for a big international audience, this, but Booth is a kind of a quite a high-end supermarket in the north of England. Um, the, the only two stores will continue to use their self-service tills, Uh, with the chain favouring traditional manned trolley-friendly tills with people there to kind of manage those things for you. And they are the first UK supermarket to rescind the use of those self-service machines. Um, They came out and said, we're not a great fan of self-service checkouts. The Booth's um, managing director, Nigel Murray, told The Grocer, apparently that's a publication all about green grocery, I I guess, Uh, we pride ourselves on great customer service and you can't do that with a robot. I think this plays a little bit to what we were talking about earlier on, which is like, I mean, they're coming out and saying good customer experience, but what I read into that is sales have gone down of different things, right? Because you wouldn't make this this change if it wasn't going to fundamentally affecting the revenue of, of you. But this mirrors massively what's happened in financial services over the last decade, right? We've kind of got rid of all of the people and gone to mobile apps being the thing that's the interaction point for. So, I mean, Rachel, it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? If if supermarkets are going to start moving back to the good old days, I mean, are we going to see a, a push from financial services where uh, actually upsell, cross-sell cannot really be done effectively in the same way as it was before. Do you think we're going to see a bit of more of a push towards more personalized banking in that sense as well? You know what? I think we will, but I think that it's always been there. I think it's to do with the scale of wealth. So Booths, they're not just a Tesco or a Sainsbury's, they're a high-end supermarket. And for example, if I go into Whole Foods, like you can bet they haven't got any self-service anywhere. They've just got people manning the tills because you're going in for the higher service, like the higher quality goods. And so I think in that same vein, when you think about more bespoke or more high-end services there is always a higher fee attached to it which means that you expect higher servicing even talk about the Revolut story that came just before one of the things that you get guaranteed on the higher tiers is 24 7 instant support more prioritized support and so I think that it's something that we have seen 
a lot in the digital space, this emergence of tiered services and paying to get higher service. I'm not really surprised at the supermarket because I can just imagine like someone going in with a very expensive shop and then trying to scan it all through and it just not working out. So I don't know. I, I wonder maybe it was it was a bet for them to try move to a more digital model and them just seeing it not play out. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? That uh, whether it's digital or whether there's sort of that overlap between the physical digital space, then wealth propositions actually don't fare particularly well, do they? So you, you are good. You know, it's a good point, actually, if you're trying to scan your £15 pineapple and you're getting fresh. I mean, it sort of tarnishes the experience for you in that way, doesn't it? But I guess we've seen this in uh, wealth propositions with banking as well, though, right? The the only real differentiating point is, uh, you know, a fancy card or some calligraphy on it, right? So, uh, but um, I mean, what do you think, Alex? Do you think um, premium experiences can be manifested in a, a digital space? All right. Well, so I'm doing research as you guys are talking because I don't know what Booth says. So it looks like kind of like Trader Joe's to put it in like a U.S. context, maybe like high end, relatively Whole small. Vibes. Whole Foods. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So all right. Yeah. So I, I think I'm I'm dialed into the right uh, experience now. Um, yeah. I I think it's really tricky. You know, um, to to use a completely different analogy, but um, I'm in I'm in Montana in the U.S. Uh, and in Montana. We uh, pump our own gas, so when you go fill up your uh, car with petrol, uh, you are, um, you know, getting out. You're doing it. It's all self service. You swipe, and quite frankly, like that's just what I grew up with, and it was a very normal experience. When I lived in Massachusetts, Ron Chevlin's uh, neighborhood, um, for a little while, I was shocked to discover that they had attendants who would pump the gas for you, and I found that experience to be really weird and off-putting. I think it was supposed to feel like premium and, oh my gosh, you don't have to do anything. But it was like really strange to me. So I do kind of wonder if a big part of how we define like what is a luxury experience is less to do with the actual mechanics of the experience and more just what we're accustomed to. And to put it in like a financial services context, if you're talking about like wealth management, and Paul, I'm sure you have a perspective on this, but you know, if you're 25 and you've never gone into a branch and talked to a private banker and had them sort of massage your ego as they tell you about your net worth, your definition of like luxury and what a premium experience is like has no grounding in like a physical context. So if you are interacting with an app and you feel like you're getting the exact answers you need and it feels like a premium experience, I think you can cultivate that type of premium experience without necessarily having to have the human touch or the in-person experience. But I, I don't I do not do that in a day-to-day basis. Paul, what do you think about that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think we touched on it briefly earlier, Rachel. It's something that, that Chip is trying to deliver on. You you rebound and you deliver your product and, and your entire branding and messaging and tone of voice around being premium and personal, which is what we're going for in our in our um, in our space. However, I think in the well in the in the wealth sector more generally, people do value that real life human interaction to be told yes, that is the right decision. You're not doing something wrong. Maybe someone just to to give you that human touch before you make a big life-changing savings or investments decision. So we're trying to find the balance to to close and reduce that cost so you can get real human interaction whilst also delivering it digitally. Just for reference, I'm a Morrison's guy. So like that's that's where I'm shopping. Uh, Alex, you'll have, I've to, never heard you'll of have to Google that I'm one. Actually, I have to do more research. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's way too... 
It's way it's way too fancy for me, booze. Like, I mean, I feel like I would be, I'd just be out of place, like, quite frankly. But uh, on that note, we are going to have to wrap up this week's show, I'm afraid. Uh, you come back for more grocery advice next week, uh, by all means. But uh, if you have liked this podcast and have liked the guests, it's always good to know whether you can find out more information. So, Alex, where can they learn a little bit more about you and all the good things that you do? Absolutely. Yeah. I spend a uh, ridiculous amount of time on Twitter at Alex H underscore Johnson. And uh, if you Google FinTech Takes, you'll find the newsletter and the podcast. Very good. I love the idea that we've made you just a little bit closer to understanding shopping habits in in UK as well. Like, uh, I feel like that was some good research that was done there. So uh, it was a it was a great use of extra time. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, where can people learn a little bit more about you and all the good stuff you're doing at Chip? Yeah, just uh, connect on LinkedIn, uh, Paul Delaney. Very good. Rachel, where can you people find you? Yeah, probably LinkedIn as well. I'm Rita Rachel Pandian because Twitter got too much for me after the rebrand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of people in that. I mean, I think there's a general consensus that Twitter's sort of dead now, right? Musk can come and tell us he's going to turn it into a financial services player as much as he likes, but uh, but the rest of it is gone, unfortunately. But uh, hey-ho. As for me, uh, do you know what? Send me an email. Like I really fancy some emails next week. So uh, david at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please do jump into any social media channel you like. Uh, search for 11FS, search for Fintech Insider, or if you want to, email us at podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.